Hello and thank you for joining Influencers Cafe. This is episode 11. This is Nikos, your host. Today I'm joined by Brett King, who is a very well-known futurist, entrepreneur, author um, on, on, the, on the web. How are you doing today, Brett? I'm, I'm great, Nikos. Uh, I am um, just kicking off my Monday. I, I got back from Australia last week to New York, and and the travels are about to start again. But I did get uh, I did get six weeks down in Asia working on my new book. So um, all in all, not too bad. Cool. What's that new book called? Uh, the working title is called "The Rise of Techno Socialism." Whoa. Right. Pretty interesting, right? The title itself is 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 it conjures up all sorts of uh, potential, uh, um, uh, cons- um, you know, uh, conflict <laughs> or uh, political discussion. But it's really about how artificial intelligence is going to change the way politics and economics work at a society level, and how that um, will affect the way we sort of move forward as a, as a species. So um, it, it's it's really an attempt to describe what's happening right now with Trump and Brexit and you know, the populist movement <laughs> and everything and, 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 and how AI thrown in the mix of that, um, you know, uh, social impact stuff will, will, uh, will affect, affect us moving forward. Um, so it's, um, it's a pretty big piece of work, actually. I've got a, I've got an economist friend of mine working on it with me. His name's Dr. Richard Petty, out of Hong Kong, and um, and yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. So the words techno socialism conjured up in my idea an image of Elon Musk talking about uh, universal basic income because of AI. Yes, and I think that's one of the things we discuss. Absolutely, U- U- UBI and universal basic asset structures. We definitely get into that. Um, the 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 sort of core um, message around it is essentially that um, the the potential for AI to create increased inequality and therefore you know have a more adverse social impact is very high based on what we know of the way capital markets and economics and you know wage growth and all of that is currently structured and so if you look at brexit and trump uh, as symptoms of economic uncertainty rather than sort of politics um, then you can see that th- this is all connected to the concerns people have about you know, are they going to have jobs in the future? Will their kids have a safe planet to live on? Um, and all of that pressure as AI comes into the ecosystem will get more acute. And so ultimately, we are of the belief that social pressure will require a more equitable distribution of wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that is done through government means or through other means is really the question which we, we explore. Yeah, never before have we seen that the power to create uh, wealth um, through technology has been concentrated on on the hands of the few, namely the the experts in machine learning and AI. So yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, part of part of the sort of acceleration of discussion around artificial intelligence is obviously we've made um, you know a, a considerable progress in the sh- in the short term. Uh, the reason for that sort of increase in velocity of discussion around AI is really a core shift that happened early in the, the 2000s around the way we programmed AI. And so, you know, we went from expert systems, which tried to encode human behavior writ large, 
Mm-hmm. So if you were programming a chess machine or a you know a chess algorithm to beat a human chess player, you would encode all of the different strategies that that chess that that opponent might use. Mm-hmm. And so basically, you hard code um, the human behavior, uh, uh, you know, into the system. But um, that changed when we developed machine learning, um, and this was essentially um, based on neural nets a sort of software-based representation of the way the human brain works. And we used this to start to teach machines how to learn to do stuff. And so the first real example of that that was successful in, in the in the wild was IBM Watson's uh, um, uh, playing Jeopardy mm-hmm. and beating humans at Jeopardy. Um, and so that was a case where, you know, it, it, it couldn't have known all the answers to the questions. Right. And so instead, what it was what it was taught was how to how to um, understand the question, how to frame a response, and then how to assess its likelihood of success. And so Watson wouldn't answer questions that it wasn't at least 50% um, sure that it had the right answer to. And so, um, you know, that that was sort of a great example of that. And then, of course, Lisa Dole being beaten by AlphaGo, Mm-hmm. the uh, algorithm around playing games. So Elon Musk and Jack Ma, I don't know whether you saw recently, they had a, a conversation on stage. I think it was in in, um, in the Middle East. But um, And Elon says, you know, when we talk about artificial intelligence, we keep moving the goalposts. So we said, you know, once a computer could beat a human at chess, that, that was a sign of some sort of form of, of intelligence. And then, no, no, that, you know, uh, no, now it's, uh, you've got to beat a game show, humans at a game show. And then it was, no, you've got to beat Go, a, a human at Go, because that's the most complex uh, board game yeah, that we have. That was so surprising. You know, and so, yeah, and so we, we keep moving the goalposts in terms of um, what is AI, but we keep, you know, hitting those. And so ultimately this only goes one way, you know, we get extremely competent um, algorithms that can do a lot of the stuff that humans do. And, um, you know, that's where we spend far too much time debating whether AI is going to happen instead of just saying, look, it's likely going to happen. Capital markets are engineered to make this sort of thing happen through, you know, productivity gains and share price and all that sort of stuff. So in the likelihood that it happens, how would we deal with that as a society? And and we're just not very good at having that conversation. We're not very good at preparing our kids for that future, et cetera, right? You're right about the, the goalposts being moved. I mean, I started playing Go about 17 years ago. And about two years into my gaming, I was uh, reading papers about like how um, we're never going to have like a computer be able to to defeat us. Go and now that then that happened, uh, you know, very you know, ten years later, pretty much. And then mm. that now humans can beat the best pro gamers at games that are pretty much the most advanced in terms of real time strategy, which is in Dota. Uh, there's basically five independent machines. Uh, AI systems or machine learning systems that they collaborated, and so now the the goalpost we don't really know where the goalpost is now. <laughs> so. uh, yeah, and and I think that's um, you know it's going to get to the point where um, you know because what you said is is quite insightful is that we don't really understand what these algorithms are doing. That's right. And at that point, you know, when we don't really understand, well, how do we? How can we have an element of control over that situation when it's black box? Um, already, we've seen evidence of um, you know machines 
respond in ways that aren't intuitive to humans. And, you know, the AlphaGo beating Lisa Doll is a good example of that because if you listen to the commentator um, when he was, and I can't remember his name, but he was also a Go champion, when they're watching the match where, which was the dis- decisive match in, in that uh, series, mm-hmm. um, and he, the commentator was like, oh, my, oh, my, you know, like, that's incredible. Because, um, and Lisa Doll had his head in his hands because he'd worked out the machine had beaten him, but he didn't see it coming because it was not a classical human move. It was counterintuitive from a human perspective. And so, um, you know, um, machines, when they're given a task, that is, you know, solve this problem or get from point A to point B, um, they may find more efficient ways of doing that compared with the way humans think about problem solving. And at that point, we may say, well, how did it do that? We won't really know. But the question is, will we care if it if the outcome is positive and, and yeah. uh, produces the net result? See, what, what scares me a lot is I have a, a degree in biophysics and had a, some did some studying on things like, you know, bacteria and viruses. With viruses, then things are, are limited to, this, to the laws of, of physics and chemistry and biology where things happen at a, a biological speed and scale. But with AI, you could have um, things, basically processes happening at the speed of you know electrons inside computers or speed of light. So you could come to a situation where if something was connected to the internet and it was very, very intelligent, then you would, we don't know, we wouldn't be prepared to cope with it. And for me, it seems like we're just, you know, creating things eventually that... Okay, I, I see we have a lot of benefit right now with you know things like structural engineering, self-driving cars, uh, you know data analysis. But I don't know if, if we can really protect ourselves from from when things get even more more powerful with you know advent of even greater computing programming power, quantum computing, for example. Mm. Yeah, well, um, you know Ben Gertzel, I was listening to an interview um, of of him the other day, and he was proposing maybe um, you know the only computers that actually develop consciousness might be quantum computers because of their level of complexity and things like that, which is quite interesting. He's the chief scientist at uh, Hanson Robotics, the creators of Sophia, the robot. Um, but mm-hmm. the the other element which really is interesting in this respect is um, la, you know, massive scale systems design. And so if you look at transportation as an example, um, or you look at the human body in terms of um, you know genetics or... Um, uh, um, and excuse the dog in the background, okay. in g- genetics or, um, you know, medical diagnosis and so forth. Um, these are extremely complex systems that we don't really, um, you know, we, we haven't mastered them in terms of understanding every aspect of them. But because of AI and the way it's developing, we think that it's going to help us solve a lot of these complex system problems because um, massive computing power and being able to make leaps of logic that we can't necessarily make. And so when you start looking at the way we use resources on the planet and the way we optimize um, you know, education and things like that, um, it's, it's highly probable that AI will get us to a point of much greater efficiency as humans and um, um, so um, much better at peace with the environment we're in and, um, you know, better able to manage our own health and things like that. So um, I do think the net benefits of, of this um, outweigh the potential risk. But the key issue is as our AI starts to impact um, the way we work 
and jobs and things like that. We have to reframe the human experience. Um, it can't be all about, you know, like the first question I ask you when I meet you at a party or something, you know, or in an airline lounge when I'm traveling is I would say to someone, what do you do? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that question sort of, that's, so much of our identity these days, our job or what we do for work. And yet, if we're only working a few days a week, and if, um, you know, basic infrastructure like housing and um, healthcare and education and food is maybe provided for us because resources are managed so much more efficiently with AI, then um, does that define us or are we defined by something else? So it's a, it's a really interest, interesting thought exercise as to how we'll evolve to uh, um, cope with these changes. But, you know, we've done it before with the Industrial Revolution, so I have faith we'll do it again with the AI revolution. Yeah. So it's a topic that pretty much could talk for hours and, and, and still not cover all the relevant topics nowadays. And in We jump straight into the meat of it. Didn't we? <laughs> it interesting. That's, that's how it goes with uh, interesting for two people, you know, have similar interests. So... Uh, so Brett, you're obviously very successful in your current, you know, ventures, careers, such an entrepreneur. Maybe you could just let us know some of your history, where you were educated, and how you got onto, you know, uh, publishing and, and and podcasts and stuff like that. Mm. Well, um, you know, I haven't always been a writer. Um, obviously, I'm working on my seventh book right now, so I, I guess that does qualify me as a a proper author these days, but um, um, I, I was a technologist. I started in the, the tech field back in Australia many moons ago. Um, but I, I think um, where I realized I had sort of a, a unique um, uh, ability was uh, in communicating to business people what the tech was about and vice versa, right? right? And so that sort of that sort of framed my career fairly early on because it was a, a, a unique skill set. Um, comparatively, there was a lot of guys that were deep in the tech that could talk tech, and you know we were constantly back in the the 90s and stuff trying to figure out ways to document um, you know business process or document uh, technology systems so that they could be easier to design based on the real world um, and, and you know, easier for users to participate in the design process, you know, object-oriented programming and other stuff like that mm -hmm. that we developed. But it was, um, it was clear that, you know, um, technology people think about the problem very differently from a business person. Absolutely. And there's always been that design issue. So uh, that sort of became um, really a key focus of my career. But um, – I worked with Deloitte for many years, heading up their e-business during the dot-com boom, um, and then went to a digital ad agency near the tail end of that. Um, that sort of gave me both, uh, you know, I had the technical expertise, but sort of business process, and um, I'd done most of my work in financial services, so I also had some deep industry experience that came out of that. And so um, ultimately then I, I recognized um, during the you know the first decade of, of the millennium, um, uh, that um, there was a real um, gap in financial services in terms of understanding how tech would revolutionise and radically change banking and money, and um, that sort of became a focus for a number of years. How do I articulate that change? And it was extremely frustrating because um, you know the the incumbent 
bankers, um, just like in other industries we've seen that have been disrupted by technology, couldn't understand the the threat um, and therefore just sort of would like to believe that nothing was going to change. <laughs> and so um, that, yeah, that led me to writing my first book, Bank 2.0. Because I figured that there was thousands of guys like me in banks all around the world who were, you know, facing the same issue. And so I designed this tool that essentially they could take to the CEO the book, you know, and say, you know, put it down on his desk and say, listen, I've been trying to tell you all this stuff for ages. Don't believe what, you know, I'm saying about it. Read what this guy says about it, you know. And and that was a sort of exactly how it worked. It worked as a catalyst to get these conversations going. And it worked, uh, you know, at the grassroots level in terms of producing some change. And that, of course, led to some extraordinary opportunities for myself, starting my own uh, challenger bank in uh, in New York in 2011, mm-hmm. um, then starting the uh, podcast Breaking Banks in 2013. Um, and, um, you know, then, then I've been able to uh, um, uh, you know, explore my roots as a real futurist uh, since then as well. So getting getting less uh, less focused on banking and financial services and more on general disruption and AI. Um, I'm sort of a frustrated sci-fi author, you know. And <laughs> so, it, uh, well, you know, I've, I wrote a sci-fi novel. It was my first novel I wrote, but I never published it. And so I sort of um, always feel like my futurism is is attempting to get back to those roots of my love of of the future. I think if you you ask many futurists, um, you know why they're why they're in the business. Many of us are in it because we we're impatient to get to the future. You know, right. we love talking about the future. We love the potential of the future, and and so our way of art, you know writing about it is articulating in the hope that we get there sooner. You know. Um, so that that's sort of the the path uh, to this, but yeah, I started as a as a bite ripper, a coder, many years ago. Nice. Um, I had I had my own software business uh, in in the 90s. Um, I automated um, a lot of uh, sort of um, factories with time card collection and payroll and um, you know stuff like that. Sweet so was, was involved in automation and that stuff, and you know that would been that was successful. I sold that business off and then bought my first ISP in '95 when the internet was just young so that gave me a good base of experience uh, understanding the the whole internet business um then I went into sort of large-scale project management uh, involving the tech um and 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 finally sort of uh, got into this uh, thought leadership role um as a as a technologist um and yeah I love it it's great I'm almost a bit surprised that you were originally a techie and managed to move into uh you know, all this other stuff. A lot of techies, they just stay techies their whole life. And I think that, you know, I I, I was really, you know, I, I, if I can say this, I, I think I was really good at tech, you know. Yeah. I mean, I was quite a gifted programmer. At 13, I was writing games for VIC-20 microcomputer, um, you know. And so um, from a very young age, I'd, I'd had a natural aptitude towards coding, mm-hmm. Um but the reality is, um, it, there was just simply more money to be made in in sort of acting as a as a translation layer between technologists and business people. Yes, that's kind of what I'm trying to head to be honest. I've been a techie for the last fourteen years. But, um, that's why I'm doing these podcasts a lot, and I'm trying to just. It takes time to, to build up a, a reputation that you can sort of move away from tech, pure tech, you know. Absolutely, no, I agree, and and you got to invest in yourself and invest in in the market around you. So yeah, I agree. So for me, podcasting is is sometimes 
it's hard to be motivated. I mean, sometimes I'll take like there's a, a, a gap of like eight months or you know three months in my podcast, but you've managed to do it every week. How do you? For six and a half years. I just yeah. don't understand how it's, how you managed to do that. Uh, sometimes pre-recording, um, sometimes getting other hosts to come in and help because you know I can't do it mm-hmm. physically every time because I'm on planes and stuff. Yeah. Um, but um, I think um, you know, look, part of it comes back to why I did the podcast, and part of it was was simple that you know the time I had been writing a lot, I'd been posting two or three times a week on a blog post, but that was actually taking you know a ton of work to yeah. do a blog post because I'm heavy on the research side. I always want to try and find some data or, you know, um, uh, something to support stats, to support the the argument. And so I spent a lot of time researching before I'd actually write those, you know, 1,000 or 15 words at the end of, end of a blog post. Um, and so for me, a podcast was actually, you know, I, I had in my mind that it was going to be less time than I was spending writing blog posts, but it, it enabled me to, you know, have content coming out regularly. And so that was sort of the motivation at the start. Of course, now, um, you know, we've done over 300 shows. Um, we have spawned a whole bunch of other podcasts. You know, we now have this media company that sort of owns all the, the podcasting properties we, we're involved in, which is called Provoke Media. Um, and so it turned into a whole different beast than I ever expected. Um, and certainly, you know, it has, it's, it's, it, at the end, has produced more, more work than, than less. But, um, you know, at the same time, um, you know, I think I came to the podcasting stuff pretty early in 2013. Obviously, there were other podcasts around, but mm-hmm. part of the reason we're the number one podcast in fintech is just because we were there and, and consistently delivered every week and everyone knew um, um, that they could hear something about the fintech uh, industry every every week. And that was, um, you know, that was an important part of the dialogue and conversation back in those days. So um, I feel quite fortunate to have sort of chronicled a lot of the big changes in fintech through the podcast. And so um, looking back at that historically, I think there's some some real gems in there um, from a historical perspective. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we did a, 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 a great job at sort of documenting the space as, as it emerged. So 300, but, pod- on you go. But yeah, it's still a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it's... Yes, and I'm trying. To, I'm trying to do two podcasts. I have a tech podcast, purely tech, and uh, I have this one for influencers. But a lot of times, people that are influencers could have been on the the tech podcast because I yeah. end up talking to people that are, are quite technical. But so, three hundred episodes on fintech. Do you find that you have enough content on that subject, or sometimes you branch out into other subjects? For the show. I've had I've had AI guys on. I've had science fiction guys on. We've done shows that would not be considered um, fintech, but considered tech, you know, mm. um, or considered social. Um, for example, social in, in in nature and things like that. So we have um, tried to, um, I guess, push the limits of of that framing of fintech you know we we run the show on the am band in new york so we're always mindful of the fact that you've got a general audience listening that aren't necessarily fintech experts yeah um and so we'll always try to have 
you know, like we might have an author, for example, who's produced a new book come on, you know, once a month or so to talk about their book. Um, and that might be in a field which is, um, you know, not specifically in fintech. Like we just had one uh, last week, uh, Julie Albright, with her book Left to Their Own Devices, talking about sociology and behavior and how, um, you know, devices have sort of changed, changed that. Um, so, you know, that sort of stuff is good base content for the, the terrestrial radio listeners. Um, but, you know, then throwing in some fintech stuff, um, you know, on top of it seems to be a, a good f- formula. But, um, yeah, you know, we get into a, a whole bunch of stuff. My, my personal favorite episodes are um, the stuff we do with the sci-fi authors and the AI specialists and stuff like that because it's the stuff I like, you know? Yeah. So... Um, I, I'm trying to write a science fiction book, but it's uh, I, I made the mistake of p- picking a plot that's too complicated for me to work out how to do it, and I keep trying to decide, do I make it on Earth or do I make it off Earth? What was the reason that you didn't uh, finish your book? Um, well, no, I did get an opportunity to pitch it to a publisher. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it didn't. It, it didn't get picked up. I, I, at the time, I was heavily involved in a bunch of other things, and so I, I, I probably didn't pursue it as as hard as I could have. Um, but the book was basically finished. It, it was um, it was called Mars Twenty Thirty Five, and it was basically a story of um, Mars developing a new type of rocket engine technology that would have made it economically independent, and the efforts of um, the UN and the CIA and others back on Earth to um, to frustrate those plans so that Mars would remain under the control of the Earth economy, um, and it involved um, you know uh, uh, Islamic terrorists using um, you know a fictional. Um, uh, fictional uh, uh, explosives and things like that, it's, it's, but it was sort of a James Bond spy versus spy type um, story set in uh, between Mars and Earth in in the year twenty thirty five. Sounds great, man. Yeah. Um, so I think I may resurrect it at some point, although I'd have to uh, change some of the story. Obviously, um, you know the SpaceX um, thing could be interesting to explore as part of that. Um, but um, uh, I'm actually working on another sci-fi novel at the moment and started it while I was away in Asia. And I don't want to reveal too much about that um, uh, because it's a really unique uh, um, plot, but um, uh, I've still got the bug. <laughs> nice. Yeah. It's, uh, would you ever want to make a, like a movie or something out of a, of a novel? So the, the new one I'm working on could definitely be a Netflix series, um, you know, Amazon Prime. So um um, we'll, we'll see, you know, first step is to get the book out there, but, um, yeah, I'm also working on an event November next year, which is entitled the futurists. Um, and it's going to be, um, most likely in Abu Dhabi, the first one, and then Vegas for the second one. And it's a collection of the world's top futurists coming together to talk about how we solve the big problems, uh, on the planet. And so we've got 10 themes, you know, climate change, multi becoming a multi-planetary species, AI and computing, um, you know, work and education, et cetera. Um, and we look at it from a 20-year lens, a 50-year lens, and a 100-year lens as to what the, um, you know, possible outcomes or um, paths are. And so we're doing that in a uh, conference format 
with sort of an exhibition of tech, um, sort of emerging tech on the side of that. Um, so it's going to be that's going to be really cool. So that is November 25 and 26 next year. Um, that that event. So that's something else I'm working on right now, which will also end up being content, either a podcast or possibly sort of a 10 part TV show. That will be absolutely a fascinating conference, really. Yeah, I hope you can make it. I'll send you info on it once we're once we're in the public yeah. domain. Please, please, please do. One of my one of my friends in London is a futurist this guy called uh, Dr. Patrick Dixon, and he does a lot of uh, travel. Uh, yeah, I know, I know. I've I've spoken at an event with him once years and years ago, so I know of him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Quite an interesting guy. Yeah, he did a lot of work with uh, ASET to fight fight AIDS and stuff like that, and uh, mm. he's been in even he's even talked talked to the Pentagon, I believe, on, on some things uh, he's uh, he's explained. Cool. Well, Brett, I'm sure. Uh, what's the, what's the rest of your week look like? I mean, thanks for taking your time today and I'm coming on here. No problem. I am heading out to Seattle. Uh, well, actually, I'm going to Philly today. Um, you know, I run this Challenger Bank Move-In, so we've got an off-site in, uh, in Philly where one of our offices are. Um, so I'll be down there. Um, uh, I'll be down there from, well, tonight and, and tomorrow. And then Wednesday, I'm back in town. I've got some meetings in New York. Wednesday night, late, I fly to Seattle um, and uh, sort of on the red eye. And then... Um, uh, I'm in Seattle for a couple of days working on some Microsoft stuff. I get back Friday night to New York and then Sunday I go to, um, I think it's Sunday, I go to Lagos, Nigeria. Oh. Something like that. What are you doing yeah. over there? Can you tell? Or um, speaking at an event, yeah. Speaking at an event and then, um, yeah, so actually no. No, I, no, September the 18th I go to Lagos. Right. And then, um, then, then September 21st I'm in London. Um, so... Um, so it's a pretty busy time at the moment. Um, you know, October, November, April, May tend to be the big conference season. So as a, as a speaker slash author, you know, that tends to be a pretty busy time for me, um, from a speaking perspective. Um, but, um, uh, you know, September sort of ramped up, I guess it's the first month back for a lot of us after, um, summer vacations. Um, so it's pretty busy. Um, yeah, uh, so it, it's it promises to be a busy second half of the year. I'm glad I got the chance to get get really uh, um, some of the writing done yeah. uh, on the new book um, while I was in Asia, and and it's really it, it was some there's uh, a lot of research gone into this book. Obviously, talking about economics and socio economic behavior and politics and all that sort of stuff. There's a lot of uh, uh, economic theory and um, you know behavioral psychology and stuff in it, but um, getting to the heart of humanity and how we deal with these changes, um, it's really interesting to see that there's been so many issues in the past that where we've been so unprepared as a human race to deal with. You know, climate change is a good example. Is We've known climate change is going to happen for 50 years. So why is it that 
A, we haven't been able to reach consensus on it as an issue, and, and B, we haven't undone the damage or addressed the issues that we needed to address. Um, it's a very self-destructive behaviour, but it's also part of it is this short-term um, planning focus that we have. We, you know, we very rarely will look long-term beyond five, you know, 10 years, certainly not out to 100 years in terms of, for example, building companies or building services that, um, you know, will take that sort of investment of time to really come to fruition. Because we're all worried about getting the paycheck and, uh, you know, the quarterly results, uh, you know, to report to the market and, and stuff like that, which really skews a lot of decision making. So, my my really interesting question about this is what is it going to take for humanity to break that cycle, that very short-term view of things? And um, once we break that cycle, I also think we solve a lot of the problems um, that we see in the world today. But getting to there is going to be a real challenge. So it's so a lot of big thinking that occurred over, <laughs> yeah, over the last few months. A lot of politics is based around the four- and five-year uh, election cycle. And also, right, the markets are very – the market is – hyper emotional and yes. a lot of ceos are just too worried about shareholder results and value and uh yeah i wonder if there's a lot must be a lot of disadvantages going public with a company to get get the market uh breathing down your neck the whole time yeah i you know i mean i've 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 thought about it, obviously, with moving. Is that a um, you know path for us in the future? And it's it's entirely possible. Um, and whether I'd, I'd want to go through that process, um, obviously, one of the key drivers for going public is just having an exit for investors. Um, you know, um, so, but again, that's, uh, you know, uh, well, it's a medium-term uh, focus, I guess, not short-term, but... Uh, Look, I, I don't know. I, it's um, there's a lot of stuff that's going to be happening over the next uh, twenty to fifty years that um, we are going to have to do a lot of navel gazing, and if we approach it the way we have in the past, it's it's going to get worse before it gets better. But if we can break that cycle, um, then there's no reason we can't solve these problems. But it would take a sort of a a collective view of humanity, um, you know, a a view that isn't bounded by trade disputes and borders and um, so forth um, to to really get there, I think. And that that's at the heart of it. You know, we've always been quite nationalistic and tribal. And yet that really doesn't make much sense when you understand that genetically we're 99.95% the same, you know, all of us, you know. Um, and, you know, the differences between us are so small that they really don't matter. So... You know, does the bit of ground that you're born on should that really define your entire outlook on life? You know that yeah. that that's sort of a, a you know if you were to sort of step back from that, um, that's a concept that is hard to understand if you you haven't seen humanity develop the way we have. But that tribalism is at, at the heart of human nature. Um, yeah. yeah, Patrick Dixon's big on tribalism as a force driving force. Future. I'll check that out. I, I'm not. I haven't read his book on that. So he's got a book called "The Future of Everything." Uh, it used to be called uh, "Future Wise" or a similar book. Uh, I've not actually read the whole book, the new one yet. But uh, yeah, I should get him on my podcast as well. 
Yeah, I'm going to try and get him on as well. <laughs> All right, if, if if you get him on, we'll we'll uh, maybe we could do that together, interview him together, and uh, then we could use the content for both. Yeah, that sounds, work. That sounds good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I don't know how much time you've got left today. Um, no, it'd be good to wrap it up, Nikos. Yeah, but okay. uh, um, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to to speak with your your listeners and and talk a little bit about what what I've been doing. And um, you know, I will just say, you know, if you do get a chance, check out Breaking Banks, our podcast. Um, there's a lot of really good content in there. Um, I'll do. It. You know, I was uh, we 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 I interviewed Boris Johnson um, nice. before he was prime minister. No way. Um, yeah, and so you know we've got him talking about fintech and stuff like that. So we had Elon Musk on on it. We've had Bill Gates. You really? know, so we've we've had some really phenomenal guests over the time. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, Boris was interesting. He he, uh, I remember his his quote. Um, I asked him why London was such a good center for fintech, and his response was, "We've got the bars. We've got the vibe." <laughs> We've got the coders. You know, it was a very interesting hierarchy of uh, priority for him. Bars were at the top and coders were number three. I do, I do um, like Boris a lot. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, the, the Brexit stuff, that's a bit of a mess right now. But anyway, um, thanks for the opportunity and um, uh, hope you all return the favor one day and come on, come on our show. Oh, I'd love to. It'd be, be an honor. Great. Okay, thank you for coming on the show, Brett, and thanks, thank you, listeners, for, for being on here, listening to Infantos Cafe. This is Nikos, and we'll see you again soon. Bye. <laughs>